Hi, I'm Coach John Cook, and thanks for listening to today's episode of the podcast. Uh, tickled to death to have my guest today, Julie Folks, the head women's basketball coach at Transylvania University. Um, her, her basketball story is amazing, and she's a terrific young coach, but I had the good fortune of coaching Julie at the Ohio Northern University basketball camp when she was about a seventh grader, uh, and she grew up in rural Hardin County just like I did, and so we've got a connection there, and, and I'm just fascinated by her journey in coaching and what she's accomplished at such a young age is remarkable. So uh, sit back and enjoy my visit today with Julie Falks, head women's basketball coach, Transylvania University. Hi, I'm Coach John Cook. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Talking Hoops podcast. I am I don't know what the word is. Uh, the irony of having the guest that I have today is is just simply mind boggling to me. Uh, first of all, I'm old enough that a, that a person that I coached in in a basketball camp as a seventh grader is uh, a remarkably accomplished college head basketball coach. So that's the starting point. But I'm also pretty well connected to our guest today because we're we're both Hardin County, Ohio natives. And for any listeners who aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, uh, where we grew up. Is, it was a lot like Hoosiers. <laughs> There's a lot of similarity uh, there. So uh, my guest today is Julie Falks. Julie is the head women's basketball coach at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, she is a Hardin County, uh, Ohio native, as I said, Hardin Northern High School, which we'll, we'll get into this briefly, but uh, it's the tiniest of tiny high schools here in Hardin County. Um, I, one of the few schools that I can actually say is a little smaller than the one I graduated from <laughs> at Upper Sioux Valley. So Julie, um, it's been a lot of years uh, since we actually had a real defined conversation and you weren't probably capable of having a deep conversation with an adult <laughs> at, the, at the time that I last had the opportunity, but we did run into each other a few years back um, during the NCAA tournament for Division Three women. And uh, I, I I discovered then, I knew that you had gotten into coaching, but I didn't realize how well things were going. And so leading up to today's podcast, and, and you should feel privileged because I don't generally do a lot of research for these. I just like talking. But I researched a little bit, and you got what I would say qualifies as a remarkably unique journey in coaching. Um, so let's let's start there. OK, you you um, you grew up in Hardin County, Ohio. Um, coaching was a, a passion for you, an interest for you. Uh, what was it? When did you know that it was something you thought you might want to pursue? Yeah, well, first off, John, thanks for having me on. Uh, I have all sorts of memories about Ohio Northern's camp, but the one that uh, was probably the strongest was that our team was the Kansas Jayhawks, and I had never heard Rock Chalk Jayhawks until you said it a thousand <laughs> times during camp that week. Um, that was our huddle break, right? Yeah, every time, uh, and our team was good, so you know it's amazing. That a correction, you, correction. You you were really good. Our team was a lot of fun, and everybody played hard, but you were really good. <laughs> Oh, well, it, it was a lot of fun, uh, and it still reminds me today that when we have all of our camps in the summer, you never know how you're influencing um, these young kids and what might stick uh, with them until they're in their 40s. So, uh, you know, I guess I owe you. I had a great basketball experience, which, uh, you know, was a good start to the things to come in the basketball world. But, yeah, you know, I didn't um, – I, I wouldn't say that coaching was something that I thought I was always going to do. I had two brothers that were, you know, five and seven years younger than me, and I loved working with them. I don't know that they loved working with me, um, but they were probably my first projects. 
And when I went into college, I, I didn't really have any thought about coaching. You know, I was playing um, volleyball and basketball my freshman year, and then I tore my ACL and then tore it again my sophomore year. And, and at that point, you know, it was a weird journey when, I, you know, you, when you grew up in Hardin County, you had to play three sports. You know, it's like you mentioned, our, our schools were really small. Our class had 39 and somewhere between six and nine women, depending on the year. <laughs> and, you know, shoot, if we didn't play everything, you didn't have enough uh, enough people to play sports. So, um, you know, after I tore my ACL a couple times in college, I really went all in on the science side and figuring out what my life career would be. Uh, and so didn't and didn't expect to get into coaching at all. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, I mean, life takes some interesting journeys. I was working at a hospital. I was running uh, what was at the time, I think, the first sleep lab in Ohio. And I was working for the Columbus Health Department, spraying some mosquitoes. And so doing, you know, lots of different things that they tell you to do, you know, get your internships and get yourself prepared. And I was trying to do all the right things um, from that perspective. And, you know, this is actually the true story of how I got into coaching in the back of my mind. As an upperclassman, I started thinking about it, but you know, I wasn't playing basketball anymore after the knee injuries, and I didn't—I had no idea how to get into it. Um, and when I graduated, my best friend gave me a book. It was called *The Alchemist*, and you know, like you do at 22 and you're moving out from college. I lost the book, um, and I was working full time at a hospital, uh, which and making you know more money than I was used to making, given coming from a very small area. And and I'll never forget this. At the end of August, I felt bad that I had lost the book. And I found it in the back of my trunk under all of my softball stuff. Um, And so I took it to work that night and I read the book. And the book was all about, you know, chase your passions, follow your dreams. And the very next week, I decided I was going to apply for a freshman coaching job at Westerville High School, uh, Westerville North. And interviewed and didn't get the job um and so then I was like maybe this isn't supposed to be and she ended up calling about a month later um the position had reopened and I started coaching and you know I was working nights student teaching during the day and coaching and I knew you know first day into the gym it was what I wanted to do and and out of all the things you said that's the thing that I think is uh, almost not debatable. Um, I mean, everybody finds their way to it a different way, but when you know, you know, right? Yeah, hell, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I would, I would be at work and have downtime and I, you know, found myself scripting out what practices would be. And, uh, you know, the way the gyms were set up there at the freshman team, I had a lot of, uh, liberties with coaching, um, and kind of figuring things out on my own. Our practices were off on an offshoot gym. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes some of the best training I had was having to figure out how to really teach at ground level. Um, and, you know, the, the one thing I learned a lot in those two years, but I also learned that, um, you know, I, I really like to win. Um, and so one of the allures <laughs> of the college level is, uh, you're able to go out and get your talent, um, which obviously helps winning. Um, and then once I, you know, I got the job at Defiance College as a graduate assistant, I think I just realized that the college level, uh, I really enjoyed 
Um, and I didn't probably know nearly like, you know, when I was 24, 25, 26, but I mean, the part now is just the ability you have to take women when they're coming, you know, out of high school and really trying to figure out their paths and help them use basketball, um, to just really move their whole life forward. And that's a part of coaching. I, you know, I absolutely love probably more than anything. Well, I, I, again, I'm just I'm listening to the story as you tell it, and and there's something about the coaching gene or the coaching bug when it when it bites, it bites, and and it is what it is, and and I think some people are fortunate they shake it, <laughs> but 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 most most people who get it don't shake it, and when I when I look at I, I think you graduated from Capital in 2000, is that is that right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you so you're at Westerville North, basically coaching for two years, 2001 and 2002, or the 2000 2001 yeah. season and the 2001 and two season. Yeah. Um, how, how did you learn about the opportunity at Defiance? Was it something you were actively seeking? Did somebody come after you and ask you about your interest in it? How did that come about? Uh, I was actively seeking it. The NCAA does a good job. Um, of posting on their websites open positions and so it was a graduate assistant position I you know I I know playing at Capitol I mean you know coach Jeffers in that program had you know at that time um, you know had just won the national championships and you know top of the country Um, and so I know that part was you know helpful in in, in that job Uh, and then also you know it's northwest Ohio and so um, I, I, I know it's harder sometimes to allure people to those areas. Um, uh, it was an area I'm comfortable with. You know, when I describe people with where I grew up, it's, you know, drive up 75, take a right turn, go 40 minutes into a cornfield and drop a pen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so in some, in some ways defiance was like that. And so I think, you know, understanding the area and, and recruiting in those high schools, that was a, that was a, a good fit for me coming out of Westerville. Um, and so, you know, I coached softball and basketball there for two years. Uh, and, and I think sometimes those experiences were really helpful because getting to work with so many different coaches and seeing how they do things, you know, ever since I was young, I think it was always looking at coaches and, and seeing what are they doing that really works uh, and how does that kind of fit with their personality and what are they doing that, uh, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, think works for me or how I want to coach, but, uh, you know, you pick up bits and pieces in both directions from everybody. And, and I think that matters. In fact, you know, when I have our assistants, you know, one of the first questions I always ask them is what would you do different? Um, and that's not a slight on me. I mean, we're different people. And so you need to approach it in a way that's really authentic to your personality, um, which, you know, it's probably easier as you get older to figure that out. Well, I, I think so. But, Julie, I think you, you, you hit on a, a nerve there a little bit is that there, there's so much available in coaching and there are so many philosophies and there are so many ways of, of doing things. And, and I think it's John Beeline says you can do anything you want, but but you just can't do everything you want. And I, I think there's a remarkable amount of value in your coaching journey. In, in, in taking something that maybe works for somebody else and realizing and learning that it's not for you. I, I think ruling some things out as not a fit for you is just as valuable as taking things that are maybe going to be a foundation for your philosophy. How do you feel about that? Oh, I, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, so I got my first head coaching job when I was 26 uh, out of Lewis and Clark in Portland. And I was unbelievably grateful uh, for the opportunity and, 
I didn't understand how rare that was at 26 at the time to be a head coach. Um, and it was at a, a university where the job was considered you know, one of the worst jobs in the country, uh, which is one of the reasons I got the job uh, <laughs> hiring somebody, somebody young. And, you know, I, I visited the campus and the campus every year is named one of the top five most beautiful campuses in the country at every level when it's, you know, just south of downtown Portland, up in a you know, up in the higher elevation, and you look out to Mount Hood, and it is absolutely, I have no doubt, one of the most beautiful campuses in the country. That's not an exaggeration. And, you know, it has a really high academic profile. And all I could think when I was walking around that campus is, you have to be able to win here. <laughs> I mean, it's just, there's too many good things. Um, but, you know, back to your point, when I started how I coached, uh, you know, coming from Capital, I thought I was a defensive-minded coach. And, you know, lo and behold, what I realized many years later is I love the offensive side. Uh, you know, for me, it's the chess match of uh, figuring out how can your players come together and score as a group and take advantage of all of their strengths in really different ways. Um, and not that you don't do that on defense. I just think offense is just this limitless opportunities to try to find new ways to score and uh and, and that's probably been one of the biggest philosophical changes over the years is just learning what part you know I love to coach and why and how that's kind of all come together uh and it and ironically it probably mostly comes back to the the science foundation in terms of you know I think I approach coaching as we're just going to keep trying different things um and figuring out what mathematically makes sense the most um which, you know, I feel bad for my poor players. I have to probably be the biggest nerd they have to work around all the time. Well, I, I actually love hearing you talk about the, the evolution of, of your views and, you, and your, you know, what you view as, as where you like to spend your time or what, what, what really intrigues you about the game. Because I think that's how coaching lasts is I think you've got to find what intrigues you. And I think you got to find what challenges you and, and, and fuels that passion. But when I look back on your journey, you said, you know, you, you get a graduate assistantship at Defiance and you spend two years there um, coaching two sports. And I, I think that gets discounted sometimes because you're actually you're actually talking about recruiting and you're talking about teaching and you're talking about relationship building uh, in two very different atmospheres under two different head coaches. And uh, there's just a lot of, of, of benefit to that. But when you're going out to a place and again, for people who don't know, you know, Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. I'm not sure how much further you can get from Dola, Julie, than, than Lewis and Clark College in Oregon. When you <laughs> when you when you make that move out there, and you've got, let's face it, you've got a very limited time frame that's that you've spent as a recruiter. How do you build a philosophy in? I think we can win here, and it starts with recruiting. Talk about your recruiting philosophy and how you approach recruiting at a place like that. Yeah, it, you know, it started first, I think, with the hiring. Um, you know, I, I had several things going for me and several things going against me. And, and one of the things going for me was I knew I was willing to work really hard. Um, you know, I, I loved it. I was passionate about it. Uh, you know, I enjoyed talking to people and, and selling them on the vision we had. Um, but, you know, the first liability I, I had was I had uh, parents who had children who were older than me. Um, and so... <laughs> You know, for for some of them, you know, they were looking at the 26-year-old young coach and, you know, trying to figure out why I thought this was going to work. Um, and so I hired two assistants who I thought really fit 
um, some of the gaps that I had. And so the first one I hired, his name was Tim Weitzel, and he is still on staff with me today. And that was one of the most fortunate uh, hires I was ever able to make. He uh, is a full-time scientist for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And the bonus there was, and maybe some of the detriment now, is we really approach things the same way um, and really understood each other the same way. And he had been coaching for years. And so he had, you know, so many more years of experience and, and he would never let me say this or he would, he would argue, but he probably, you know, ran most of the program the first few years and just kept putting me out in front of everybody. Um, <laughs> and, you know, thankfully I didn't have an ego about it. I just wanted to win and, um, you know, I'll never forget, he missed our first three days of practice for an annual fisheries event. And he came in and I was about 20 minutes into practice. And I was like, wow, this man knows way more than I do. Um, and, you know, and I just remember I went home and I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to learn from him, as, you know, try to steal everything I can steal. Uh, and then I was able to hire uh, Sarah Winkler, um, who's now married, different name, but she had gone to um, Lewis and Clark. So she was a graduate. She had played at one of the top high schools out there at Oregon City. Actually, she was on the front of a Wheaties box at one point. Um, and so hired both of them. And so they were able to, you know, give me the Portland draw, um, some credibility in the local high school community, some experience on the court in the ways I didn't have. And, you know, I think between the three of us, we were able to just kind of rely on each other's strengths um, and pull together. And, you know, then the next year I hired one of our seniors um, from that team, um, and then Tim and, and Talia, who was the senior, they, you know, we coached together for the next nine years. And, um, you know, I think that's probably been one of the things I felt the most fortunate is both places I have been, um, you know, you know, the salaries of assistant coaches for division three, we've been able to retain assistant coaches, um, for a really long period of time. And, and for Tim now, this will be, we just finished our 16th year together. And, you know, and so I think that, that part has been really good and, and the recruiting philosophy for me is and, and this is just really you know at the end of the day I want them to have you know and be able to look back and say they had the best division three experience they could have which entails you know them on the court and you know getting to play and getting better and winning but also off the court all of the leadership things that we do to move them forward with their goals um and then still making sure that they can be college students you know I I think that they would say we are really reasonable with our expectations and of their time and, uh, and always trying to find a way to help them meet whatever goal it is. And, you know, sometimes you have to believe in them more when they can't believe in themselves. But I, I you know, for me, that's selling the parents on that their daughter is going to be really well taken care of in our program from every perspective, not, not just basketball. You know, Julie, it's interesting. Some of the things that you're saying nearly echo, uh, the sentiments of what I, I heard from Michelle Duran when I recorded an episode with Michelle recently. And for those who don't listen regularly, Michelle is the retired, now retired former head women's coach at Ohio Northern University. I was fortunate enough to be on Michelle's staff for three years. But you, you said so many things about the college experience and 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 the, the, the height of the experience across the board for college and having expectations. And um, it just it, what I love about it is, you know, you, you didn't you didn't talk a, a lot about not that it doesn't matter because it does but you didn't talk a lot about size length uh, this skill set or that skill set I mean all those things matter but that's not the foundation of it 
Um, and, yeah. and I think that's that's hugely important for people to grasp is that, uh, yes, you, you do need talented players. That, that, that goes without saying. But the recruiting foundation and the, and the philosophical foundation is what's most important. And I think what I'm what I'm struck by is what you just said becomes transferable to any region of the country where you might coach or any institution yeah. where you might coach. You may be at places with higher academic standards or maybe not as high of academic standards or uh, lesser competition in terms of the overall quality of the league or, or great quality within the league, whatever it might be. But but those are transferable things. And so and recruiting was going to be hugely important to what you did at Lewis and Clark. Let's face it. They were if I if I read correctly, they were 33 and 92 the five years before you got there. And, and, and you, your first year was five and 20. So it, it, you know, I, I'll never forget that first year. We were five and 20 and people were thrilled. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I was mortified. Um, and you know, we had, we had a, we had a great group of women, you know, and we only had 11. Um, so it was easy to get everybody playing time. And uh, and, you know, at that time, I mean, and that league is still amazing, but at that time, there was always three teams in the top 20. There was always somebody either winning the national championship or competing the national championship. And, you know, the first thing I realized uh, was, one, I had a little bit of East Coast bias um, that still exists today. And, two, <laughs> you couldn't win that league until you could, you know, win a national championship. And um, and that was a tall order to try to start figuring out. and. There is no doubt I competed there against some of the best basketball coaches in the country in that league. And, you know, Scott Ruick went on. He went straight from George Fox to Oregon State um, and obviously seeing what a great job he did. I still remember it was those freshmen. It took them all the way to their seniors to get their first win against them. Um, and to get to that level, it took, you know, it took four or five years to build up to where, you know, we were competing against um some of the best coaches I've, I've, I've ever seen, to be honest, and, and stealing things left and right. Uh, you know, one of the things that we are known for uh, that people just you know, really struggle to wrap their mind around is that we send everybody to the offensive boards and I can run all the math and um, you know, and it feels awful. The one time there's a long rebound that gets out for a layup, uh, but I can sit down and show all the math and I, you know, I'll never forget that happened because there was a team out there that was, you know, always competing for championships and she's coaching division one now too. And, and, you know, I mean, we just couldn't keep people off the boards because they sent everybody and to have five people that were disciplined to box out on long rebounds was just impossible. And, but it's a really hard habit to build <laughs> as well. Um, but it's one of the things that we do now and we send everybody and, um, you know, we were pretty proud this, you know, in the last two years, there was only one game that we had to adjust and, and that's something I think we're really known for now. But it really does come down to the math of it, not because I thought it would be really exciting to send everybody to the offensive boards. Well, that, that's that's one of the questions I had for later, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it. Now, when you when you talk about getting into coaching in your early to mid-20s, I mean, 22, 23, 24, and then becoming a college head coach at 26, where did you look for growth opportunities and, and development as a coach? I mean, Right now, there's so much available, whether it's coaching videos you can order or YouTube or the different listservs you can get on and coaching toolbox and 100 different uh, ways to get information. But wh where did you look for growth opportunities and a chance to develop? Did you have mentors? Did you have confidence in the coaching 
world that, that you leaned into? Did you have specific places that or programs that you wanted to kind of look at? What, what was your inspiration for trying to grow and, and develop and improve and deepen your knowledge? Yeah, you know, at the time, I mean, when I was young, I think I was doing it a lot of the traditional ways. I mean, at that point, there was, you know, you could or, order the online. Oh, shoot, it was probably still VHS then. Yeah, uh, probably. VHS. <laughs> and then DVDs and, you know, in the coaching clinics where you would go and sit in a room. Uh, and, then, you know, the WBCA conference. Um, you know, and so I think those were the first places I start. But what I ended up realizing that, you know, this is not an exaggeration. I mean, Tim Weitzel, my assistant, is one of the best basketball coaches I've ever met. Um, and he is um, an incredibly intelligent man and has been a student of the game for, you know, six decades. He'd hate that I said that. He's probably not that long. Um, and so for me, you know, it probably took 10 years just to absorb the knowledge he had. Uh, and he is still a student of the game. And so every time I talk to him, you know, it is a lot of philosophical basketball questions. Uh, you know, he has all of his al- algorithms as to how the game has changed. And, and, you know, the game really has changed a lot in the past uh, 10 years with the rule changes and the hand checks and how the game's now called on the defense. And, you know, and that had some monumental shifts in how um, the game is played. And we actually, you know, created an entire new defensive strategy because of, um, you know, freedom of movement and versus, you know, we used to be really physical and foul in every play. And, you know, that didn't work anymore once we changed the rules. And so, you know, I think a lot of it was him. But, you know, we touched on this earlier. You don't know it at the time, but, you know, when I was in high school playing three sports and, you know, playing for two travel teams in the summer, just from that alone, I had access to five coaching staffs every year. Um, and then, you know, went on, played for two different college teams at Westerville North, uh, coached basketball and helped with the track team. And then two, you know, at the at Defiance. And so while I was 26, I had had access to, you know, 15 plus coaching staffs that I had played for. And, and some of them, you know, the volleyball coaching staff at Hard Northern in high school, you know, they had won 15 straight championships. And there are still things that they did to then that I, you know, we implement you know, various versions of it. And they were really fundamentally based and, and some different things that you don't know then, but I can still look back and I can say, yeah, that's why it worked. And that's one of the reasons we were really good. And, and probably my demeanor with the players is a direct reflection of how they interacted with us. It was just constantly a teaching atmosphere where we had fun. There was unbelievably high expectations, uh, but there also wasn't a lot of yelling. It was, you know, a lot of just talking to us as players and, and, you know, working with a motivated group. And I think that's probably had the most direct reflection on how I started coaching my career and, um, and how I wanted to go about it. I, I, being a yeller is not in my natural personality. And, you know, we try to start every practice with the belief that we have the same goals and I can just sit here and talk to you and we can come up with the same results. And, and I think our players appreciate that because it's not this, you know, high, low, high, low, Uh, You know, I think confidence comes from knowing uh, what's going to happen and and knowing the environment. So I think that's worked well for me, but certainly been really fortunate to have a lot of great coaches I've been around. Well, and I think, Julie, your approach is important, too, because I think a lot of people could talk about having access to lots of different coaching staffs. But I think depending on the youth of the person and and their purpose for being involved, I think oftentimes it is what can you do for me? 
uh, with a lot of young people versus what it sounds to me like is every coaching staff that you were exposed to, whether it was a different sport or a different season or summer or whatever it was, you you actually were, were soaking up things that could shape you. And, and, and that's remarkably wise use of your opportunities. And I, that's one of my philosophical things about coaching is if you're involved in a sport and coaching is in your blood and you don't think something around that game is an opportunity that's that that, you're, that is worthy of you. If, if if something seems beneath you, then your mindset is wrong. Um, and, and I believe that. And it just sounds like your mindset under all those circumstances was here's a chance to learn and apply it to something that'll help me as a person. Even before you knew you were going to be a coach, you were assimilating those things. And, you know, my brother likes to use the, the often maybe overused phrase of, of being a sponge, but certainly sounds like that was your approach. And, and, and I think there's just tremendous value in that. And, and let me be be the first to tell you, if you haven't heard it, that if you were born with a personality that yelling didn't come naturally, count yourself lucky. Cause if you're born with it, like I was, it's really hard to get away. It's really hard to get away from. And in this day and age, you have to stay away from it a little bit more to be effective. It's a real struggle. Um, but but definitely count yourself blessed. Hey, listen, I'm a couple minutes ahead, but I think I want to go ahead and take our break now. What I want to get into when we come back from the break is I want to talk about this first five or six years in your head coaching journey. And I've got a specific question I want you to address for me when we get back and and talk about the springboard from that first five years to the next five that really set you up to be where you are today. All right, let's take our quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back into the podcast. Again, I'm Coach John Cook. This is Talking Hoops, and my guest today is Julie Falks, the head women's basketball coach at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, for those that don't know, it's a Division three school in the Heartland Collegiate Athletic Conference, a uh, remarkably successful program. But, Julie, before we went to break, we had talked about your, your initial journey into the head coaching ranks um, and coaching in Oregon at Lewis and Clark College, uh, inheriting a very underachieving program, uh, a program that, that hadn't seen success to, to any degree, really, in, in the recent future before you got there, a real struggle your first year. But here, here's where I want to take this this first question out of the break. I'm just going to read the numbers. OK, year year one is is 0405. I believe you're five and 20. Then you're 12 and 12. Now, for people who aren't that familiar, don't spend that much time in the in, in the college ranks. Uh, a seven win turnaround in one year is a sizable turnaround at the college level. It's just not that common. Um, but yet you, you follow that up with 16 and nine and then 14 and 12. So here, here's the question I have is following those four years, essentially now you, you, you've had three recruiting classes by that point. And so your, your fifth year, but your, your fourth recruiting class to come in, you go 11 and 14, Talk with me, if you would, about your mindset coming out of that. Was there was there apprehension? Was there concern that, you know, a little bit of a dip is, is one thing. But, you know, we've, we've kind of we've now dropped off a little bit for consecutive years after a really good start. What was your feeling uh, coming out of, of of year five when you had finished 11 and 14? Yeah, you know, that, you know, Lewis and Clark was a hard place uh, and I wouldn't trade it. You know, there it was really challenging to recruit there. Um, between the academic standards and the price, uh, the price tag, you know, those were two hurdles set up right away. And so some of it was learning 
Um, and the other challenge that we faced was, you know, three teams every year would be ranked in the top 25. So if they swept you, so if you were just, you know, the 40th team in the country and they swept you, you know, that was six losses. And then because of the regional location, everybody else you played was an NAI school with full scholarships outside of usually two other games. Wow. Um, and so every night you really had to battle to win, um, which really makes the years that we were, you know, 29 and two or whatever those were, you know, it felt exceptional because not only were you winning and winning in our league, uh, you were also playing, you know, some NAI division one teams and winning those games. And, you know, it really, I think, uh, I think we, you know, we had to sometimes look at it with, we did not have the record we wanted. Um, but we also didn't feel like we were very far off. Um, and so I think, you know, and it's challenging because I much prefer to be 26 and three and, you know, 27 and three. Um, and so figuring out how did we, how did we recruit there in a way that mattered? And, and honestly, after about year five, uh, we were recruiting, I kind of think like everybody else was recruiting. And, you know, I talked to Tim and I said, Hey, I'm going to try this, you know, left field strategy. And so we did it, you know, for a year and, and still did all the normal things and our left field strategy really worked. Um, and so then we tried it again and, and now it's still the only thing that I do and my assistants think I'm crazy and, um, or the new ones at least, not, not the ones who have been around for a while and seen it work. Um, and so I think that was probably the most, I think, I think the hardest thing to learn between being 25 and 30 versus now was, you know, this is how everybody else does it. Um, and so, you know, this is how you kind of learn to do it. Um, and I think, you know, it still reminds me of Moneyball and baseball where all of a sudden people were looking at things and saying, I get everybody does this, but why? Yeah. Um, and that's how we kind of took recruiting and, and, you know, and really stopped doing some of the insane things of being out every night. And, and, you know, I mean, just the constant and, you know, we try to really spend a controlled amount of time on recruiting but make sure that time is unbelievably well spent. Um, but I think that was probably one of the biggest things was during that time was really starting to figure out who we were. Um, and then we started, you know, we had a couple classes coming in a row that were just fantastic. Um, and, you know, I thought we really things had things rolling. Our last freshman class that we didn't end up coaching, I thought was probably one of the best classes that we had ever had come in out there, which was saying something because, you know, we had Christina Williams, who was a first team all American and, uh, you know, a lot of really great players around her. Um, but I think that's probably been the one thing that's helped since then is, you know, really looking at why do we do things and being willing to just go completely left field, um, and try something different. You know, we kind of do the same thing on defense now and, and when I explain to people, they, you know, they look at me like I'm crazy. And so sometimes we just stop explaining things because <laughs> maybe we are. Well, and here's where, where I, I guess what I take away from that. And I don't ask anybody on the podcast to share anything more than they're comfortable sharing. But if you have an idea that breaks with tradition or is an outside the box idea, uh, I mean, the first thing you have to do is you have to believe in it because the first thing that'll show up when you try to implement something new is if you don't believe in it, it'll come through. It'll be clear that you don't believe in it. Uh, and and so so having that idea and taking a, 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 a fairly outside the box approach, whatever that might have been specific to your recruiting philosophy, 
you got to believe in it, and, and then it's got to there, there got to be some dividends. So I talked about that record in, in year five. You go eleven and fourteen, and then in the next four years, you you bounce to sixteen and ten, twenty one and seven, twenty five and four, and twenty five and four. Um, and at the place you talked about the the, the the hurdles that existed, the difficulty, the lack of traditional success, I just can't really kind of even conceptualize. I you know I was fortunate to work at Bluffton University for Guy Neal as an assistant uh, for uh, two different stints. And I thought the same thing, difficult place to recruit to, and it's got its own built-in challenges to winning. And so our approach tended to be, well, we've got to recruit a really good class, let them take their lumps early and let them grow. And then the chances are that after three or four years of growing with a class, we may be starting over, uh, you know, trying yeah. to, you know, you're trying to supplement that class for two years. And then at the end of their fourth year, you got to kind of redo the whole thing. And so I I'm, I, I would be curious, and, and I don't know how many people are going to listen. I know there are four or five college coaches that listen to the podcast regularly. You may get some calls about your outside-the-box thinking <laughs> on recruiting. So here, here's my next question. So you, you have the kind of success that I, – I, God, I don't want to sound callous when I say this. You have the kind of success at a place that hasn't been successful that's going to draw some attention. You're going to get some attention. You're going to get some interest possibly when, when other jobs open. But your final year uh, at Lewis and Clark was a difficult year. You, you finished just over 500. Yeah. Talk about the how the opportunity at Transylvania came about and your process in pursuing that job. Yeah, it was probably, you know, after my ninth year, um, it felt like I was ready to go do um, somewhere different. And, and what, uh, you know, I loved, I loved living in Portland. I loved living on the West Coast. Um, and really appreciated the time. Uh, you know, one of the challenges that at least it was for me was that as a athletic department, the culture, um, you know, was just phenomenal people. Um, but I, I, you know, I was really interested in coaching at a place that was successful across the board. Um, and, and, and just kind of having that atmosphere and, and just being back in this part of the country, um, and so, you know, I was, I had a few interviews, um, you know, that next summer and, you know, at a couple of division one places and, and ended up having, you know, an offer out on the East coast of division one to be an associate head coach and then Transylvania. And I was sure I was going to the East coast. Uh, my parents were sure it was a great opportunity. Um, and then I, you know, I met the athletic director at Transylvania. It was the second interview on the trip. Uh, and I had always wanted to work for just an incredible, you know, leadership, you know, kind of tier five boss. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget, I met Dr. Sheely and I knew within 20 minutes that was the type of person that I wanted to work for, um, which, you know, six years later, still fortunate she's still there. Um, and, you know, and I believe that more now than ever before that. Um, I, want, I just wanted to be at a place where, you know, when we finish second, we take a lot of grief in the hallway uh, in a really good way. But it's, a, you know, it's a it's an athletic department that just really believes um, in, you know, in all the life lessons that come from pursuing championships and, 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 you know, being your best self. And as a department really holds everybody to a higher level of accountability and expectation. Uh, and it all starts with Dr. Sheely. I mean, her leadership is phenomenal. And then we have the perk of being, you know, at Transylvania from an academic standpoint was, you know, you know, I think them and Lewis and Clark, we just jump back and forth in the, you know, um, 
rankings. Uh, and so it was a place I, I really think that academic, you know, higher academic institutions fit my personality really well. Um, and so for me, it kind of had, I just thought that, you know, the perfect scenario I was in Lexington. So it was back home and I could see all my nieces and nephews and, and mom and dad didn't have to fly across the country to watch games. And, uh, was able to, you know, very different taking over a program that had been successful, which had all of its different challenges. Uh, and so it was kind of the perfect storm that came to better. It came all together. I have been really blessed and lucky uh, to work at Transylvania. It's a great institution. Well, and I'm struck by the, 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 the difference in the two head coaching opportunities, because you, you said before that when you interviewed at Lewis and Clark, it wasn't a very good job. And that's probably why you got hired. It actually reminded me of a, a st- Urban Meyer tells the story of, of interviewing for the Bowling Green job uh, and turning it turning it down. And, and he said that he called Lou Holtz and told Coach Holtz that he had turned the job down. And Holtz said, "Well, call him back and take the job." And he said, "Well, I, I just don't think it's a very good job." And Holtz said, "It's obviously not a very good job. That's why they're offering it to you. But go make it one and see what happens." And, 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 and kind of the same thing where it's a it's a big transition to go from taking it job and getting an opportunity at a place that wasn't highly sought after to inheriting a program. And, and, and a lot of our listeners, if they're checking out the podcast, may not know that when you went to Transylvania, they had just finished 26 and three and their coach was leaving because he was moving up to the division one level. Uh, very interesting yeah. and, and, and different transition because generally speaking for a lot of head coaching opportunities, you don't expect to take over a place that's ready to win. So talk about transitioning into a program with an established record of success, um, some, some remarkable success in that, and, and, and moving into that and putting your stamp on it. And, and I, you're not rebuilding a program, but let's face it, you are building a second program as a head coach, as your program. Talk about the, the, the I don't know, I guess the dynamic of that difference of, of coming into a place with an established track record of success and, and how it felt to try and continue that or improve upon it. Yeah, it, you know, it was, I think it was one of the times, I mean, I've always said, I think the teams, my best teams are the years that I feel the most pressure, anxiety, stress. Um, and in some ways, the years that I've been 14 and 14, while I hated losing every game, I don't think they're nearly as stressful as the years where you really have a chance to compete for a national championship. And, you know, every, every game might, you know, be the difference in your bid and hosting. And, you know, there's just so much less room for error. And, you know, I, we got that job, oh, um, you know, about June 20th. That's right. That's exa- I, that, in know, fact, I looked online. That's the exact <laughs> date, June 20th. I looked it up. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I made it from, you know, literally moved from Portland uh, to Kentucky in 10 days, started July 1st, um, and really was uh, adamant about being there for the recruiting period. Uh, you know, it was some of the same questions. How are you going to recruit this side of the country after being out there? Um, and I thought after I went out there and did it, you know, we'll be able to come here and do it and use a lot of the same philosophy, except for this time when I said, hey, I think we can win. I had something to at least back it up with. Um, but, you know, it's way harder to take over a program um, that had been successful because you are going to be compared to what just happened. Uh, you know, and, and starting at Lewis and Clark, most things, you know, and I, I didn't ever know the coach before me, but most things people were like, yeah, this is, you know, immediately better. Uh, but when you're replacing somebody who had just, you know, been to the NCAA tournament and had a lot of success, there's just going to come with the natural comparisons. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, you know 
I, I tried to be myself and, and really buy in. It was, it was a um, roller coaster transition. We had, you know, one of the starters had already transferred. I was in the process of transferring out. The league player of the year had decided that she didn't want to play her senior year. And the league's leading rebounder had decided she didn't want to play. Um, and so, you know, it took my first, you know, I got there and the athletic director said, hey, you need to go get the transfer, you know, young lady back. And so two days later, I went to their house and started that conversation. And then it took all the way up until September to convince the returning player of the year that she should come back and play. Um, and, and just, I mean, completely different process. And so by the time we started, we had two of those three players back on the roster amongst a lot of talent. And there was five seniors who had, you know, really high expectations. Um, and good or bad, I think Coach Todd and I are really different coaches. And in some ways, I think that helped um, because it was a different philosophy. And so there was less comparison. Um, and, you know, we had a really intelligent group. And so we just tried to make sure we always had kind of open conversations and they understood why we were doing things. And, uh, you know, we got, we took off on a roll and started winning and that always helps buy in and um, kept winning. And, and so I think, um, you know, we, we were fortunate and on the flip side, we had five seniors and we're grad, you know, only had 11 players. So we were going to have six. And so we were recruiting our tails off because I, you know, I kept looking at Tim and I said, man, I don't really want our athletic director to regret this hire you know, we win a bunch of games and we have eight people on the roster next year. Um, it's the hardest year I've ever worked. I felt like there's been times, you know, I mean, coaching, you just kind of have to work hard. But that was, without a doubt, the hardest year I've ever worked to uh, make sure the players there had the best year they were going to have and then also make sure that we had a team the next year. Well, and it's interesting uh, to, to have to go through the process of recruiting your own roster. I, I, I think that's something, yeah. again, that, that a lot of college coaches don't ever have to experience. But when you make a move like that, it's a good possibility. And, and for again, for people who aren't familiar, you, you, you came to Transylvania and replaced Greg Todd. Greg had a ton of success and went on to Moorhead State. And then if I'm correct, I think he's continued to have a considerable amount of success at Moorhead State Absolutely. Uh, as, yep. as the women's coach there. And, and so you're, you're re-recruiting your roster, but understanding that that's, that's just the, I guess, a cost of doing business for a transition um, that has to get behind you as, as quickly as possible. And it really didn't. It took into the fall. Um, but were, did you feel like with that behind you, were, were you kind of able to hit the ground running or was it really still that transition into early October, mid-October and into the beginning of the practice season? You know, I felt, we, I felt like we hit the ground running. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've done on both sides of the country is every three years we take our team to Canada, um, you know, using the NCAAs uh, out of the country. Um you know, rules. And, and so, you know, let's us start early. So we started at the end of September, you know, had 10 days of practice, went up to Canada and we, we busted that schedule up there. We played, you know, drove to Canada, played that night, played four games and four days came back. And, and I thought those 14 days, not only from a culture wise of, you know, taking a trip immediately where we got to spend a lot of time together, plus getting a bonus three weeks, uh, where we could start implementing because, you know, when you take over a whole new team, you essentially turn everybody into freshmen again, um, you know, with a whole new offense and a whole new defense. And, and so we didn't want that to set us way back. Uh, and so we tried to kind of mix in what they were used to doing with what we were doing and why it was going to be a little bit different. 
But I, you know, I'm sure those three weeks in going to Canada in a lot of ways probably saved us because, you know, getting those early wins, um, you know, was a huge difference. And I just remember the first game of the year, uh, you know, we had put in the offense, you know, sending everybody to the boards and that's a hard habit to create. And we played Berea college in our first real game at home. And in the first half, they just kicked our butts in transition. <laughs> and I had a new assistant, Maggie Pruitt, who was a first team all American at center. And, and, you know, we came out of the locker room and she, you know, just looked at me and said, I'm not sure about this offensive rebounding thing. And it kind of hit me right then. I mean, that was actually, she said it on the way in. I mean, that was the reason it wasn't working. The worst thing you could do on this strategy is nobody gets back and nobody really goes. And right. so it was the commitment thing you talked about earlier. We had to get the commitment. Um, and so, you know, we talked about it and we really did recommit in the second half and, and just really won that battle. Um, and now Maggie, Maggie always tells that story, which we're talking to recruits and parents and she's like, it works, but you know, I was not bought in um, until about 10 games later when we were just, you know, that year we were number one in the country in rebounding margin. And you know our our motto has always been stay until we score, uh, and oh, you know, that's a lot of fun to play that way. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And well, so obviously the the first year being what it was, you you said that the talent level was high, and and they, they were twenty six and three the year before. They're twenty five and three in your first year, and and you know I'm I'm looking. You, you've been at Trancy six years, and and your bad year was nineteen and eight. So I don't know what the hell happened in year two that you only won nineteen <laughs> games, but. Uh, you've had an unbelievable level of success from the, from the quote unquote worldly definition, 137 wins and 31 losses in six years. is, is kind of unheard of. Um, and I told you, I was going to ask you this ahead of time because I didn't want it to, I didn't want it to be inappropriate, but I do want to ask it because you've mentioned several coaches in your experience that you either coached against or you replaced a guy who, who made the jump and you've had interviews to be an assistant and an associate head coach, at the division one level. I mean, we still live in the society we live in, Julie, and it's not going to change. People are going to be grabbed by those numbers. They're going to see a 42-year-old head coach or 41 years old, whatever you are, with 295 wins. You're going to get to 300 unless COVID just kills another season. And, God, I can't believe I said that out loud. But you're going to get there early. And, and do, do you have you had thoughts about the possibility of taking what you do and how you approach it and, and moving up to another level? Yeah, you know, I mean, you're right. Over over those years, there's there's been calls, there's there's been interviews, um, and some that have gone really well. And you know, I think without a doubt, Tim and I have talked about all the time. Hey, does does what we do does it translate? Uh, you know, we tend to end up on yes because we coached against you know Coach Rook at Oregon State, and we laugh because we see what we both do, and you know, just how you know, it's essentially doing it with some, you know, just different players. Um, but, you know, I can still, I never forget, um, you know, Coach Rook was in his second year and he sends me a text and he's like, hey, we just ran your set for 12 points. And I'm like, yeah, I saw it on Sports Center. Uh, you know, and I wish I was joking, but that was, you know, it, and I was just like, gosh, dang. Um, and so you know, I think there's, the society makes that, you know, feel alluring all the time. Um and, and so I think there's a part of me that always wonders because I just think that's kind of natural human inclination is, you know, is what we do, is it transferable and how would that look? Um, and so I think I always land in, you know, I wouldn't rule it in or out. Um, I do know this after, you know, 16 years, 
you're fortunate when you're working in a great place for a great boss um, and people are taking care of you. And so I don't take that for granted. Uh, you know, I feel really fortunate with my life in Lexington. And um, every year I get to do this here in this manner, I think is probably a blessing. Um, and, you know, so I guess I, I don't know. I, I also, you know, I like challenges. I like change. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think has probably kept me at the Division Three level is, you know, the other part of what we do they let me teach leadership classes uh, at Lewis and Clark. And then when I came in here, they let me, you know, kind of use that skill set uh, with our SAC group. And there's been other speaking engagements on leadership. And I'm, you know, over halfway through my PhD on leadership. And, and so I think while coaching is a huge passion, that other side is too. And I can't, you know, I struggle to separate the two of them. And so I think right now what's been great is I can do both. And, you know, COVID, dang it, I was supposed, you know, going to be a speaker for the NCAA this year at an event. And so, you know, that other side of the personality I love and, and one of the things that we've been able to do at Transylvania that I just uh, think everybody in the world should imitate, you know, we have a guest coaching program where every home game we have a, you know, a different woman in the community. And, and so we have, you know, the president of Kentucky Toyota, the first president, you know, in the world for a Toyota plant, she comes, you know, and we have, women like that who are on our bench we have this you know cfo for valvoline um and so that that leadership side being able to bring in different groups that our team gets to interact with and, and what college basketball team in the country literally can text those type of people for jobs and questions uh and so i think that's the part right now that i every time i start looking at and talking to those different opportunities i don't know how to make those both work at the same time that's uh, I didn't realize. Uh, I, first of all, the PhD thing blows me away. Congratulations for being halfway through that. I, that that's phenomenal. But what what I'm what I'm hearing from you is is a real, I guess, investment in and belief in the Division Three model. Um, and and I'm a I'm a huge believer in the Division Three model and love the Division Three model and and the way Division Three forces us to operate, I think, I think is, is, is really good for development of the whole person and, and those kind of things. But I think the allure of, of that next level is, is always going to be there. So I guess the only way you, you chase that off is stop winning. So I don't think you're going to buy into that <laughs> in, 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 <laughs> anytime soon voluntarily. I, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, and I tell all of our seniors every year when they have a few things going on and I'm like, you know, you're stressed about having to make this decision because you have options and choices. It could be way worse. Right. Nobody could want you. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, try to take it with a positive spin that while those are always gut wrenching decisions to decide whether to take a new job and, and do those things. I mean, it's, it's the product of uh, having a few blessings and getting opportunities. Oh, we've got about five minutes left. And I think the blessings and opportunities piece is a good way to transition to this question. Cause and I don't want to be too cheesy with asking this, but I, I, I've said this before on the podcast. I'm a big Scott Van Pelt fan in terms of listening to a guy that provides entertainment. And one of his go-to phrases is everybody's from someplace. Um, you know, you and I are from Hardin County, Ohio. You're from Dola. Uh, and we talked about the size of the school. Just talk and reflect for a second, if you would, on the dynamic of – Growing up where you grew up, attending that size of a school, the, the, the pace of life, the expectations that, that people naturally have about where you're from, and, and what about your foundation there puts you in a position to go on and accomplish the things that you have? 
Yeah, it, it's, it starts with, I mean, the biggest blessing, uh, you know, I ever had and did nothing to deserve was I just have great parents. Uh, you know, my parents have now, oh gosh, been married nearly 50 years. My mom uh, always stayed at home. My dad was a truck driver for Morton Buildings, which uh, just announced that that plant is closing and he will, you know, in November would have been 48 years with the same company. Wow. Um, and... Yeah, you don't hear of those things. And so while we didn't grow up with, quote, a lot of material goods, you know, things that you didn't understand that were so important at the moment, my parents were huge on uh, spending time with us and experiences. And so we were always doing things um, together. And, you know, while my mom was at home with us, you know, I think one of the things that I learned is, you know, my dad was a truck driver, so there was nights he's on the road. And so, in my view, mom could do anything. You know, mom would fix whatever she needed to fix. And and so I think in some ways that just became a, you know, really natural part of our lives to feel like, hey, we can we can take care of whatever problems come our way. Uh, we were a family that was huge on board games and card games. And, and so we were always competing, which, you know, really is, I think, part of, I mean, just who I am as a person. I, I love that. And what I loved about it since I was really little was, you know, the analyticals of seeing who could find the way to win first, which is really what basketball is. And, and so, you know, I think it was really fortunate and, and just, uh, you know, got to play summer softball and that became a, the core group of my friends uh, who were all a year older than me. And sometimes you need that extra help because, uh, you know, I was a first generation college student, um, you know, older sister, two younger brothers. And uh, I think probably one of the things that, you know, I knowing the stats I know now, the fact that for having one parent working and the other one not and not having a lot of money, you know, all four of us are college graduates. Um, and, you know, mom and dad just did a great job of, you know, I mean, just supporting us and being there for us. And there was never this giant push for college, but it was just, you know, kind of next steps. And, um, and I think we were just really fortunate to have a lot of people who knew in terms of the high school. I mean, some of those high school teachers just retired uh, who taught all of us and the education was outstanding. You just didn't even know how good of an education you were getting because they just assumed since it was a small school, you weren't. Just fascinating. Uh, interesting to me. Of course, I'm familiar with it and that makes it maybe a little more interesting to me than it does to other people, but certainly interesting. The next place I, I want to go just to wrap this thing up, I mean, because we're, we're up against the time and I told you I would try to keep it to an hour. Um, I, I think what you've accomplished is terrific. I think it's easy to say that. I, I think where I'm where I'm headed with this comment is, you know, I, I met you 25, 30 years ago, probably now 30 years ago, close to it when when I, I met you as a kid. Um, the, the core of who you are has put you where you are. And we work in a profession, Julie, in coaching where people don't stay who they are very often. Um, and, and you talked earlier in the podcast about being the best version of yourself or trying to get your players to do that. And, um, obviously you've grown and developed and, 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 and you've learned and, and you're not the same person, but you, but your core is not different. And, and I think that is remarkable. And I think you should be commended for that. Um, I'm going to encourage anybody that's listening to the podcast to follow Transylvania women's basketball because uh, I think it'd be worth the time. Um, I'm going to follow Transylvania women's basketball a lot closer than I have been just because 
uh, I've got the time to now. And, and um, I just want to thank you for the time you spent uh, talking with me today and, and sharing and reflecting a little bit. I think that the sharing piece is always a little difficult for some people. And I think there's, I've said it over and over again on this podcast, there's just real power in people's stories. And somebody who's listening to this is going to benefit from it today. So I appreciate you giving me that time. Now, the bad news for you is if you haven't listened to the podcast, I just have one rule. And that is the the, the guests on the podcast have to provide the host with a t-shirt. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can, you can bring it to Bluffton when you play coach Shuttler's squad, or you can, you can throw it in the mail and send it to, to hard Northern high school and Andy Wilson will make sure I get it or what, whatever needs to happen. I'm actually, actually going to do hard. Northern's got a golf outing July 11th. And I, I sponsored a hole out there for those guys for their scholarship committee. So I'm going to go out and see some hard Northern folks, but I really do. I mean, I just, I appreciate that at your core, you are who you are. And I think success is very seldom an accident. It doesn't make it easy. Um, but, but it's not an accident and, and, uh, timing is a, is a big factor. And, and for, for two different reasons, your timing at different stages of your career was really good, but, but it's what you do to make that stand up. That's, that's created the results you have. And I just, I, again, I want to thank you for the time you spent with me today and, and wish you the best of luck going forward. Hopefully we can keep in touch down the road. Well, John, I appreciate it. And honestly, I mean, t-shirt is a small price. So, uh, I'll make, I'll make sure we get that up your way. My, my parents are coming down. It's going to be the first time I've seen them this weekend since this pandemic started. So, uh, I'll make sure a shirt gets back your direction really quick. <laughs> that, that would be great. I'm a large now, but if we don't get this damn quarantine over with, I'll be an extra large soon. So <laughs> I, I, I need, I need to, I need to get, I need to get the t-shirt while I'm a large and have more, more motivation to stay here. But, uh, again, I do appreciate it. I, I hope we can stay in touch. Maybe down the road we get around season time and we can squeeze out an hour or two. We can actually talk X and O sometime. Oh, I would love that. Absolutely love that. I'm, I'm sure there's lots I can learn from you. I I wouldn't go quite that far, but it would be an entertaining podcast, and that's what I'm left looking for these days. Again, thanks so much for your time. Have a great rest of, of your week here, and obviously a rest of your summer, but good luck hopefully getting your season back and your, your team back in some sort of regular routine as soon as possible. All right, you too. Stay safe. You bet. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening again today. If you would like to listen to previous or future episodes of the Talking Hoops with Coach John Cook podcast, you can listen on Spotify or Google Podcasts as well as several other podcast platforms. Please review, rate, and subscribe. And if you would like to support the podcast financially, you can do so at anchor.fm backslash john-cook. That's J-O-N-C-O-O-K-0. Anchor.fm backslash John Dash Cook Zero. Thanks again. Hope to talk hoops with you again real soon.